Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, uh, in the Psalms to Psalms 42 and 43. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 469. Uh, I was traveling this week, and Pastor Isaac was supposed to be preaching, uh, but uh, Leo made a... Um, early visit, and he is uh, very, very handsome, uh, quite small, but healthy and doing well, and uh, I didn't have time to finish getting ready uh, for Malachi uh, this week, so we're going to take a, a, a step back into a psalm we've looked at before, but it's been a few years, actually two psalms, 42 and 43, and I'll explain why both of them uh, in a few minutes, but first, uh, let us hear God's word. Uh, God's word is good. It is always true, always faithful, and it gives life to those who receive it by faith. So Psalms 42 and 43, this is God's word. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life, I say to my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in the Lord, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and lead them and lead me. Sorry, let them lead me. Let them bring me into your holy hill, into your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. 
Uh, we are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us and that you would speak to our hearts and that you would illumine our minds and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy and glorious truth. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. My guess is Psalm 42 is not unfamiliar to you. It is one of those uh, go-to psalms uh, when you feel distant, uh, when you feel down, uh, when you're in the midst of depression. It is an easy psalm to take to your lips and to cry out to God uh, using... It's been set to music uh, many times with various arrangements, and that is as it should be. Uh, God's word is uh, meant to be sung, uh, meant to be confessed. This psalm is written uh, for us in the midst of pain and anguish, anguish so we might uh, know how to cry out to God. It's meant to point the worshiper as he does uh, to where comfort is found. To God, the God of comfort. As we look at uh, Psalms 42 and, and 43 this morning, really I just want to drive this, this one idea home. It's this. In exile, God's people can call out to the God who comes to their rescue and comforts them as they await the day when they can re-enter his house and worship before his face. Uh, while we are distant uh, from our heavenly home, we can call out to God. And he comes and he rescues us and he comforts us in the midst of our pain and struggles. Um, that's what we want to see uh, this morning. But as, before we jump in, just a little bit of context. Uh, the Psalms are, are interesting. They are, are not arranged by author. They are not arranged chronologically. They are arranged uh, thematically. And perhaps you've noticed, or we've talked about it before, but as you read through, you, you see at the beginning, book one. You're like, what's that about? And then, and then you end uh, uh, Psalm 41, you see book two. And you, and, and you keep reading, hopefully. And you, you realize that there's five books within the Psalms. In fact, the, Psal the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five smaller books. And these parallel uh, the five books of Moses that open the Bible. So Psalm 41 concludes book one, which parallels uh, Genesis in many ways. That's why Psalm 1 owns, uh, opens with this kind of vision of Eden, like the tree growing by the river and things like that. Uh, and, and Psalm 42 begins book two. And that would mean that we should expect from it some similar themes that we find in the book of Exodus. And sure enough, as, as joyous as, as Genesis ends, you remember how Genesis ends, right? Joseph has been long departed from his brothers. Uh, he is now in power. His brothers come. His father comes. Their households come. And they, they, they dwell in the land of Goshen. They, they are prosperous. And it's beautiful. And it's exciting. Uh, and, and then you, you turn the page and you start the book of Exodus. And God's people are enslaved under genocide. Um, they're being oppressed and afflicted by the Egyptians crying out for deliverance. Sure enough, Psalm 42 opens crying out 
for deliverance from enemies. That's the first thing, is, is the flow of the Psalms. The second thing I want to mention is that Psalms 42, uh, 42 and 43 go together. Um, they're probably originally one psalm at some point got divided into two. Um, but there's this repeat, repeated refrain three times in Psalm 42, 5, 11, and 43, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation? my God, that the repeated refrain is meant, it's the chorus, right? It unites uh, this, this song into one. We don't want to stop midway through a song. There might be some songs you want to stop midway through, but this is not one of them. Uh, we want to sing it all the way through to the end. Uh, and so we're going to look at both Psalms 42 and, and 43 to get today. And the opening image is that of this deer searching uh, for water. And it's not this casual wandering. The deer wakes up in the morning, shakes the, rubs the sleep out of its eyes, um, looking for a morning drink. The image is, is, is this deer who may have one time had plenty of water is now in the midst of some severe drought. Uh, Maybe it's been chased out of its environment, the pools, the rivers that it once knew, and it's now de desperately searching for some new source of provision that it once knew. And, and, but the thirst is great, and each minute brings it closer to, to death, because water is the source of life. I got asked this week why I drink water so much. There's... The Bible tells us to, Natasha. I was at Masha's parents on Monday and Tuesday. Um, water's important. Without it, you die. Thirst, true thirst, uh, is, is the most crushing of physical needs. Uh, you, you, you can go weeks without food, not water. And that's what this deer feels, this, this crushing thirst. Like Adam and Eve being driven from the Garden of Eden, it has, it has lost access to this once plentiful, plentiful provision. And now it looks around and it finds only drought and desolation and, and death. But of course, this is but an image. It's the trick of the poet because, because the poet's not simply uh, describing nature and animals. He's talking about his own soul and a greater longing than even the longing for water. What is really sought after is, is, is nothing less than God himself. Because he's the true water of life, the, the true provision. This is not about physical longing. It's using a physical image to talk about the thirst of the soul. It's a longing to be satisfied with a provision that God alone can give. And so it's a spiritual thirst that's being described. Like a deer plant pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's a spiritual thirst, and God alone is the one who can quench it. 
The psalmist literally says, When will I come and see your face? That's what he's longing for. That's the provision for his soul. I just, I need to see you. I need to gaze upon you. And that's how Israel described coming into God's house, the tabernacle, and later the temple. It was there that God manifested his glory. We've, we've talked about this before. Uh, in the light of his face, that refrain in the scriptures, the light of your face. Uh, the idea is, is that this is, this is where God's presence shined upon his people. If you read the King James, it's where God's presence shone upon his people and where they could experience his life-giving love and provision. It's where their souls were fed. And yet something's impeding the psalmist from coming into God's house. Like, like that deer driven from its feeding grounds, the Israelites are now incapable of, of going to the temple and being fed and encouraged. They've been prevented from entering. And it's all the more tragic when you consider the authors of the psalm, the, the sons of Korah. These were the gatekeepers of the temple, according to 1 Chronicles 9. They were the song leaders in Israel. First, uh, Second Chronicles 20. It was their job to lead Israel in the procession into God's presence, to lead them in singing, to lead them in praise. Their lives were given over to the corporate worship of God. And as such, they would have organized the feasts and the festivals of Israel that took place annually in Jerusalem. They would have had the privilege of, of feeding Israel as a picture uh, of, of their hearts feeding upon his good news and his grace. This was their calling. This was their life. And yet now it is a distant memory. They pour out their souls in anguish and in longing. They, they have been displaced. They have been cast out. And they are cast down. Gone is the abundance of the festivals. And so now they say tears have become their only food. And we ask, what happened? What, what, what's happened that leads them to this, this dire place? Well, they say they've been cast out of the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 6. I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, and Mount Mazar, the river from which they drank, the mountains upon which they feasted. They're, they're now memories. They're, they're, they're behind them. They've been driven out. They've been displaced. It's describing Israel in exile when they were taken and captured by the surrounding nations, the ten northern tribes uh, to Assyria, the two southern tribes to Babylon. And so now, suddenly, they have more in common with their ancestors who were in slavery in Egypt before Moses came, when they suffered under Pharaoh. They're again far away from that land that God gave to Abraham and promised to his offspring. They're again enslaved. They're again oppressed. They're again being put to death. And they're calling out, crying out, begging for rescue, begging for deliverance. But the exile wasn't a fluke. It wasn't because God was incapable of holding Israel's enemies at bay. He's quite good at that. 
the exile was a culmination of Israel's own continuous rebellion against God. It was punishment. Something they had been warned about time and time before. Like the flood in the days of Noah, it was judgment being poured out. Only this time, it, God wasn't pouring it out on those outside his household, but on those inside his household. In fact, that image of, of a flood is, is quite fitting because the psalmist picks it up. In verse 7, he says it, uh, that, that the judgments of God are like waterfalls, crashing waves that are taller than he is, overpowering him. And you have to see the irony, don't you? A psalm that opens with not enough water, <laughs> right? Moves on to too much water. Because water can either be life or it can be death. And so God's judgment and the possibility of death are likened to waters and the flood wet crashing waves in the sea. And so in one sense, the psalmist is dying of thirst, and in another sense, he's drowning. In one sense, there's not enough of God's, in terms of provision and deliverance, and in a sense, there's too much God in terms of judgment. And so what's the psalmist to make of all of this? And that's perhaps the saddest part of the psalm. In verses 8 through 11, the psalmist talks about the taunts of his oppressors. And that's not shocking. Uh, oppressors taunt people. That's why they're called oppressors. That's uh, standard warfare tactic. When you're conquering or have conquered someone, you want to demoralize them. Warfare is not simply physical and external. It's mental. And the goal is to break the will, the spirit of your enemy. Uh, and, and that's done through uh, what we call propaganda campaigns. Uh, uh, mis, you know, lies, outright lies, or uh, perverted truth so as to break someone's will. So the psalmist's enemies are taunting him and asking, where is your God? Because <laughs> he sure doesn't seem to care about you. Your God's left you. He's not coming to help you. He's abandoned you. You have no hope. You have, you, you have nothing. All is lost. Just give up. And here's the most heartbreaking part of all. The psalmist is asking the same questions himself. He's taken those taunts of the enemy onto his own lips. He's believed the propaganda campaign... And look at verse 9. Yeah, God, why have you forgotten me? Where there was hope in verse 2, when shall I come to your presence? In verse 9, all that hope seems to be lost. The despair is even greater in Psalm 43, verse 2. Why have you rejected me? He's convinced that his adversaries have spoken truly. He's convinced that God has rejected him, has abandoned him, he has believed the taunts of the enemy. And it's okay, it's just us. We can be honest. We know what this is like, don't we? We know what it's like to look at our circumstances and, and, and to look at God like one dying of thirst, to want nothing more than to see his face shine down upon us and grant us respite from our agony and our pain. 
and then to believe the enemies to, to think that there's no possible way God could love you. No possible way he could come to your rescue. And he's abandoned you to believe that you're rejected and that you'll never have the opportunity to be welcomed into his presence and gaze upon his beauty and to be called a child and embraced. This is the anguish of the psalm. The psalmist feels this deep sense of God's absence and he's convinced that he's been rejected. He feels a, a million miles away. So what hope is there? What hope is there for the person in exile who looks around at his circumstances and says, is God even in control? Everywhere I look, I'm, I'm, I'm laughed at, I'm mocked, I'm told to shut up. I'm, I, 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 try, I try to honor God and I'm, I'm being told I'm wicked. I, I'm being punished. When you're behind enemy lines and there's no way to get to God's house, what do you do? And yet as discouraged as the psalmist is, he doesn't truly lose hope. Yes, he's discouraged. He's downcast. But he has not given up hope. First, he, he cries out for vindication, right? Lord, answer my accusers, right? But then look at verse, verse 3. Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. And so the first thing we have to see here is, is the way he has come to see deliverance. He's, he's in exile. He's in prison. He's been captured. If God is going to help him, God is going to have to come behind enemy lines and get him. What the psalmist envisions is this rescue mission. Imagine that, uh, the image is that of a special team uh, going behind enemy lines to rescue a fallen soldier, a prisoner of war. You know, it's, it's that no man left behind mentality. Specifically, he asked God to send his light and his truth. Again, light was identified with God's glory, with his face. It dwelt in the tabernacle, uh, seen in the, in the menorah, the candles. And, and it guided Israel through the wilderness in the pillar of fire by night. Truth, light and truth. Truth could also be translated as faithfulness, which also dwelt in, in the temple. Because God is faithful and true. God keeps his promises. He abounds in steadfast love. And faithfulness. And, and that's who he is to his people. This is what the psalmist is asking for. That God himself would leave the temple on his holy mountain and come and rescue him from his oppression. That God would go into the place of exile and bring him back. That, that God would come and bring him home. And he has good reason to ask that. Isn't, that. isn't that what God did for Israel when they were in Egypt? He came to Egypt, brought judgment on the Egyptians, and led his people out of bondage and slavery. And, and more than this, between uh, that deliverance and the entrance into his homeland, he set up the tabernacle and traveled with them. 
they had an altar in the wilderness. They had a place to draw near to him even before they entered their homeland. Before they would ever draw near to him in his land, he came and he dwelt with them in the midst of their wandering, in the midst of their exile. That's who God is. And that's, that's what the psalmist says he hopes for in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his exile. And that's the only place to find comfort in the God who has demonstrated his willingness uh, to weave his comforts, the comforts of his own house, and to go to his people, the ones that have been captured. The only hope is in the God who sets up a tabernacle outside his homeland so that they can dwell with him even there, away from home. And ultimately, while God did this in Egypt and would later do it in Assyria and Babylon, ultimately he would do this not just for the people of Israel, but for all of his people throughout the world. And he would do so in the person of Jesus Christ. Consider how he is described in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. He was in heaven, (laughs) enjoying heaven, and yet he came and let that all go to serve us. Or, uh, John says in his gospel, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He came to his own, and he became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You can't help but hear echoes of Psalms 42 and 43 in this language. He came to rescue us. He, he, he said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to buy us out of slavery. But the thing is, he would not be able to deliver his people through brute strength. The enemy that, that held his people captive was not Egyptians, And it was not Assyrians. It was not Babylonians. This goes back to Adam and Eve. God's people are not uh, in exile because of drought. They're cast out from his presence because they've sinned. Because they've rebelled. They were cast out because they could no longer stand in his presence and not be consumed by his wrath. And and that's what Jesus came to deliver us from. Beloved, the greatest enemy is not outside you. (laughs) It's your own heart. And, And to rescue you from that slavery, Jesus would have to endure exile himself. He would have to become the ultimate exile. He would have to suffer uh, our spiritual thirst. He would need to undergo the flood of God's judgment and wrath. And that's exactly what he did. He came and he suffered his own judgment in our place for that 
was what was required to take that wrath and turn that wrath away from us. He came as a substitute. And that suffering came to a climax, to a pinnacle on the cross where he was put to death. And so it's not surprising that the cross would be described both as a flood and as a drought. In Mark's gospel, Jesus likened the cross to a baptism, which, which Peter says is, is a picture uh, of the flood of Noah. That the, the waves cascaded over him like a waterfall. But while he was on the cross, at that moment of greatest pain, he also described it in terms of thirst. John doesn't record, as, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke did, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead, he simply says, we read this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and they, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. He came and he endured those, those waves of judgment. And he endured our bitter thirst in order to rescue us from it. And so as great as the suffering is that's described in the psalm, it pales in comparison to what Jesus endured in order to rescue us, that he might bring us back into his own presence in heaven. And so while it's easy to identify with, with the pain of this psalm, it should not leave us in despair. Three times the refrain, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope is the is the answer to the call of despair. Despair comes from believing the lies of the enemy, not the faithfulness of God. Despair comes from forgetting his character, forgetting who he is. Despair comes from forgetting that he is the God who leaves the comfort of his own heavenly house and comes in order to rescue his people. God has given us this psalm to guard us from despair, to help us put our thirst into words, and to, call, uh, uh, to teach us to call out to him for his provision, the only provision that can truly satisfy. But it's not just intended to be this inner dialogue that we have with ourselves uh, to try to get ourselves to avoid despair. At the beginning of the psalm is, is something called a superscription. I read it at the beginning. It's, it's before verse 1. Superscriptions were introductions that may give background or instructions on how the psalm is to be used. And here we're told it's for the choir master. This was meant to be sung as a congregation, as a body of believers. The people of God are, are meant to sing not just to God, but to one another in order to admonish one another not to fall into despair, but to hope in God. 
This is what it means to admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that, that Colossians 3 tells us to do. Admonish one another. Encourage one another by singing the psalms to each other. We sing together as thirsty pilgrims to encourage each other and to remind each other where we are headed, where our hope is found. And just as God gave his people a, a place to worship and draw near to him while they were in the, the wilderness, before, while, while they're still on their way to the promised land, so too does our God meet with us as we await heaven. Each week we have the privilege of gathering together. Each week we come to gaze upon the face of God. Each week he meets with us and he allows us to sing together and to encourage one another. No longer do we draw near through a special tent or building, but rather the Holy Spirit dwells within us as his house and he dwells within our praises God dwells with us in exile. We long to enter the promised land of heaven. Our God is with us. And one of the greatest evidence of that is that, that he took on flesh and blood and he walked this earth in order to rescue us. That, in, that incarnation of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, uh, the gospel of John calls tabernacling. He, took, he pitched his tent like God did in the wilderness. And the Lord's Supper, right before us on the table, is a continual reminder to us, a continual reminder to you that you are not alone. That God left his home as truth and life and came to rescue you. And so as you receive the bread and the wine, you're to be assured that God has done all that was necessary to rescue you and bring you home. You're, you're reminded through these things that, that those who hope in Him need not despair. It's as if the bread and wine speak to you and say, Why is your soul downcast? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God for you shall praise him. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift uh, this morning. Our gracious God, we confess that we are often tempted to believe the lies of our enemies, that we are often tempted to believe that you've forgotten us, that you've rejected us. And then the temptation comes to give ourselves over to despair. We thank you for the reminder that we have no reason to despair, for you are the God who comes to the rescue. You send your light and your truth, and you have come to lead us home. You've come in Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came into this world to suffer misery and pain and death in order to rescue us and bring us home. And so we thank you. We praise you and we confess that you are our hope and we await the day when you bring us home. Until then, teach us to wait patiently, teach us to worship gratefully, and may we as a congregation encourage one another, may we admonish one another, and may we spur one another on towards love and good deeds, we pray. Amen.